Well, good morning, everybody here, and then to all the Flatlanders online this morning. That the snow scared you, and it's okay. We fear not here, but uh, we're thankful that you're joining us this morning, whether here in person or online. We are just going to have a little shortened service today, so we hope you'll stay with us this morning. Let's do a couple of worship songs. Let God speak to us wherever you're at. You don't have to be in a church. Come on, take your place wherever you're at, the temple of the living God. Come on, stand to your feet this morning wherever you're at, unless you're driving in a car. But otherwise, come on, this is worse than worse.
When we are a little low on attendance on a typical day like today, what I like to do is instead of meet and greet, maybe you guys could just kind of halfway through the sermon switch places. And then it makes it seem like more people. Yeah, you can go ahead. I'll turn it over to you. Pardon me? Oh, we're zooming. We're welcome to Mount Zion Church. I'm so glad you all came. And online, don't listen to Eric. He was fearing walking down that hill. He was walking so slow that it's okay you're at home watching us online. We only have a couple of announcements. Oh, first off, this is what I woke up God telling me to do. So... If Maverick is watching, Maverick is my grandson, I'm sp I love you, Maverick, and Jesus does too. And if everybody, if you're a grandparent, and you have not told your grandchild that Jesus loves them, I encourage you to do it today. Okay, so the only announcement I have, no, I'm kidding. Um, is don't forget about Secret Sisters. We are starting back Secret Sisters, and I know I handed out a lot of um, applications. So try to get those back as soon as we can so we can have a party and figure out um, and pass it out and get your Secret Sister for the year. So I'm excited about that. Sandwich Sunday is March 5th, and the theme is soup and salads. 
And it's also next Sunday, my husband says. He's so intelligent. Um, we do have weekly... <laughs> we do have weekly um, Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. Um, Sunday adult school at 9 o'clock. So please come and um, at some point, some you're welcome anywhere and everywhere at Mount Zion Church. So have a wonderful day and say stay, stay safe. There you go. See, you're the nice person. <laughs> you're the nice person at church. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I guess I should say hi to my grandson too because he kind of put me in that position. <laughs> We are so thankful. And if you are uh, this morning wanting to give to Mount Zion Church, the best way you can do it, just go to the link right there below the uh, description. It is www.mtzchurch.org. And just click online giving. It's as simple as that. We encourage you to uh, help continue giving faithfully to God and also supporting this ministry. We appreciate it so much. Um, just, I don't have any other announcements. We'll keep it pretty simple this morning. I, uh, everybody, here's our meet and greet. Wave to one another. There you go. There you go. They don't want to sit through five minutes of meet and greet out online, so we won't make you do it. But I, I also wanted to uh, say keep in your prayers, uh, Lori and Kelly, up the hill a little bit. I know it's been tough for you guys. We love you, and we'll continue to pray for you. And uh, if we missed anybody, just put uh, your comment right there, and we'll pray over it and pray for you, or contact us at the website as well. Is there anything else I'm forgetting, Bob? Bob always seems to know. So is it okay if we get right into the Word this morning? All right. If you have your Bibles at home or your Bibles here, um, we're going to be again in Genesis chapter 26, except this time beginning in verse 17. Genesis chapter 26, verses 17 and 18. Father, I just ask you to be with us in the Word. I ask you to decrease me. Let my voice not be heard, but only your words. God, I pray that, that I don't insert anything of, of me. Let it all be of you this morning. Open up our eyes and our ears to the hearing of your word to increase our faith and change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Deb, could you go to that first slide? Where are you? I lost her. There you go. Right, there it is. So I don't know if many of you could see online. I'm sure it's right, right here. Uh, is is uh, this is in Ashbury, Kentucky. It's the Ashburn University. They're having a, a revival. It has been going on for several weeks right now. It's not their first. It happened in 1905, 1908, 1921, I've heard many testimonies. It sounds wonderful. And slide two, in 1906, another revival happened in 1906 at Azusa Street in, the, in Southern California. That one our movement actually began out of, our Assemblies of God and many other denominations as well. And then back in 1995, we have the Brownsville revival that happened. And we look at these things and we see them and we go, how do we know? Because I watched online a lot of people come out of the woodworks to decide what is and what isn't revival. It cracks me up that they've decided they know. Because I don't know. I know this. You can only judge it, number one, if you're there and your life is changed and God is moving in you. The other way is the fruit. We'll see what comes out of it. I don't know. There have been so many different revivals. I read an article about revivals over the history that did different things. Whether it was just a, a revival of worship that brought out so much new music and touched the world. I've seen revivals where they, like in 1906, where in Azusa Street, where it was a breakout of the Holy Spirit and baptism of the Holy Spirit and the evidence of speaking in tongues. We have great awakenings that happen. We're going to talk about that later. Sometimes it drives you to the word. Sometimes it drives you to your knees. Sometimes it just makes you proclaim. It drives to evangelism. There are different types. And I don't know. And you know what? I don't care. It's not my job to know. It's God's. So how do we discern it? Well, I don't think you need to, to be honest with you. Because revival isn't about, for me, I don't want revival to happen to someone else. <laughs> I want revival to happen to me. 
And then I want the fruit of that revival in me to happen in other people. Oh, Lord, begin with me. Oh, Lord, start with me. It only takes one, you know. It doesn't take thousands of people. It takes one. Look what Jesus did. It takes one. Look what 12 disciples did. It really just takes a few. So when I look at these things, I started thinking, well, how do we know? Well, how, what led up to it? What began? I don't know. I know where we're headed today. I may not know next week, but I know today. I know when back in November of 2022, November 30th, we started a Bible study on the Holy Spirit. And then on Sunday, the following Sunday, January 8th, we did a message called Fan the Fire, that we need God's fire, God's Holy Spirit. Let me stress upon you that I had planned on one week of preaching on digging deep. One week. And that was Sunday, January 15th in 2023. God wants to prepare us for the blessings he wants to bring. Deb, if you could pull that slide up, please. That right there, that little line on the bottom. God wants to prepare us for the blessings he wants to bring. I wish I had known at the time how profound that statement was. Because when I look at what God is doing, there's many other revivals happening even now. Texas, Texas, I know I heard of another university, several other places. Of course, students, it's wonderful to see. But I want it for all people, all races, all tribes, everybody under the sun. But that same thing is I look at this and go, God, what are you doing? From November 30th to now, what are you doing? So how do we know? How do we know? And like I said, I don't know if we need to know necessarily, but let's, let's see. Let's go to our text this morning in January. We're going to continue from last week, Genesis 26, verse 17 and 18. We talked about how Isaac... The, 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 the enemies were jealous. They sent him out to another land. They, they went out there. They had no water. They had no foundation. They had no life. And Isaac had to do something. So we start in verse 17. It says, Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of the water which he had dug. they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he called them by their names in which their father had called them. We are looking at continuing of the activity of the Philistines. The Philistines are the enemy of, enemies of God. They're the enemies representative of your soul, the enemies of the church. I want to show you again in the history of the church herself. She establishes this principle that I talked last time we talked. Thank you to Steve doing such, and, and Lori for doing such an amazing job last Sunday when uh, I was uh, 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 laid up. And uh, it was not fun, and I was appreciative of his message as well. And um, I'll be talking a little bit dovetailing off of some of that as well. But when we met last time, we were talking about how church history demonstrates beyond any doubt that the trouble has always been to the fact that the Philistines have blocked the wells. They have thrown in material that lies between the people in their need and the supply of the water at the bottom. Water representing life, representing, representing the Holy Spirit, representing the foundation of what they needed. Let me give you some evidence. I want to do this quickly. I want to summarize the history of the church in this way. That the concealing and the neglect of certain truths and certain aspects of Christian truth has always been the chief characteristic of every period of decline in the history of the church. That is my first point. Deb, I think we have that slide. Is that slide six? There it is. The concealing, the neglecting, these certain truths, Christian truth. We have to get back to what are those foundations? What are those chief characteristics? Because the Philistines have been covering it up. 
If you look at the periods of decline when the church was dormant, it didn't seem to count. You'll find that the church had also been in great denial or a concealing or a neglect of certain vital fundamental truths that are essential to the entire Christian church. We are seeing that today with a tickling of the ears. We are seeing our churches turning into Sunday morning entertainment self-help. We are seeing it everywhere, and we're getting away from the central truths that we must have. For instance, the Dark Ages were followed by a period of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. What was the great characteristic of the church then? That the vital truths of salvation could not even be seen. In the 16th century, they were hidden. They were cluttered up. They were covered up by all a mass of teaching, which was pretty much characterized by the Roman Catholic Church at that time. These people had no spiritual life. They were kept in darkness. They were kept in ignorance. They didn't know the great truths of the gospel or salvation because they were covered up by all kinds of other things. Steve talked about it last week. That before the, the, the revival, the condition of the church was dormant. Before the great evangelistic awakening, that we see associated with names like Whitfield and Wesley, you find always the same exact thing. The church was dormant, useless. The vast majority of people did not attend a place of worship. And there was no evidence of Christian vitality at all. When I talk about Christian vitality, I'm not talking about a bunch of people just jumping up and down and filling a church. I'm talking about a move of God and the Holy Spirit. Well, what was it due to? It was, a great, it was the great fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith back then that were not being preached in many churches. I don't think are preaching them today. They're not believed. The controlling climate back in the 16th century mostly was deism. A system of truth that basically cut off God from his own interest in his own universe. The living water of salvation was hidden, covered up, cluttered by this rationalism, by philosophy and psychology and all the great thinkers. When you come to read the history preceding the outbreak of the great revival that happened in 1859, particularly in Ireland, you find the same thing. The period before the revival was a deadness in the church. Years before that revival, and I'm thinking more in the 20s and 30s of that time, the Presbyterian Church in North Presbyterian Church in the North in Northern Ireland had also gone astray from its core central doctrines. It had espoused a doctrine called Arianism, uh, Arianism, and it denies the eternity and the Godhead of Jesus Christ. Arius taught that the Lord Jesus Christ was created and was not co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, and he denied him part of the Godhead. Now that was the cause of the state of church, a deadness, a uselessness. It was only when that was corrected, swept aside, the church came back to true doctrine, and the revival broke out amongst many people. That's the first piece of evidence. The concealing of neglect of certain vital truths have always been the chief characteristic in the life of the church in every period of deadness, every period of decline. And if you don't think we're seeing it today, then you're not, have your eyes open. There is a deadness in church. There's a deadness when it comes to Christianity. And secondly, no revival has ever been known in the history of churches that deny or ignore certain essential truths. None. You've never heard of revival in churches where they deny fundamental, foundational truths of the Christian faith. For instance, you've never heard of a revival around Unitarianism. You've never heard of a Catholic revival either. Now, the closest thing in a Catholic revival you can come to is in 1966. 
There was a Catholic history professor that was baptized in the Holy Spirit and wrote a book about speaking in tongues. That'd be about the closest thing you get. And let me remind you once again, every church in the New Testament was a Pentecostal church. Thirdly, you find very clearly in the history of churches, such churches have always opposed or persecuted those who've been in the midst of revival. And I see that online more than I've seen anything else when it comes to revival. I saw one that was a, a, a fantastic quote. In fact, I'm going to pull it up here because I think I have it. Um, I, I was, yeah, here it is. I did find it. It says, this is what we do. Us, Lord, send us revival. God says, here you go. And then us, here's our list of concerns, critiques, and cautions about it. That's what we do. Our concerns, our critiques. God, send revival, but we want to see how it goes. I remember, I've, I've told you this story before, but I think it's very similar to that, that quote about revival. And I think this is where we have a problem. I was, uh, I was driving in a, a white Ford pickup, dropping my kid off, and I remember the next day I had to do a funeral, and I was going to sing Amazing Grace. And I found this fourth verse to it or something like that. And I was praying in the truck on my way home, Lord, I know I don't want to go too long at this funeral, but should I do the fourth verse? And God said very clearly, yes. And I very clearly immediately responded, I'll think about it. I asked God, he answered, and I said I had to think about it. That's what we see a lot when it comes to revivals. Because we don't want to have to have, if we have revival, the problem might happen is you might have to change. We may have to change the way we do church, the way we witness, the way we do evangelism, the way our relationship was with God, and that's uncomfortable. In the history of Northern Ireland, over a hundred years ago, the Roman Catholic Church at that time was actually putting on sale, I think Steve mentioned some of this, the so-called holy water, urging people to sprinkle themselves, even drink it to avoid or evade the things they were calling revival. Revival was happening. People were finding the Word of God, and the Catholics were saying, oh, no, 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 drink the holy water and get away from all that stuff. And I'm not doing this to get pleasure. I'm not doing this to slam other churches or denominations. It's just that if we really are concerned about revival, we have got to discover the things that hinder revival. And that is the concealing of vital truths and doctrines that have always hindered revival. My last principle is without a single exception, it is the rediscovery of these fundamental doctrines that has ultimately led to revival. It's like coming back again. It's like, oh my gosh, I never knew that in the Bible. I never saw that before. It's a, though scripture becomes more alive to you than it ever has and applies in your life before you never even knew before. It's amazing what happens. There is always a preliminary to revival. Over a year ago, I began a quest because I, 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 I watched this video uh, uh, called An American Gospel. And it was shocking to me how far removed from preaching the whole gospel we have gotten. And it challenged me personally over a year ago. The first fundamental thing I had to do in my life was I had to have a rediscovery of the fundamental doctrines of my faith. It appears to come suddenly. It seems like it happens so fast. But if you look carefully into history, you always find there's something going on quietly. A preparation by unobserved people. A preparation of rediscovery of great central truth. And you know where we have found it here at Mount Zion Church? Our Wednesday night Bible study. This little group we have on Wednesday nights is a powerful little group. We have seen a rediscovery in our roots and in our theology on Wednesday nights. I encourage you to attend. If you take, for instance, the history of the Protestant Reformation, it's only after Martin Luther had suddenly seen the truth of justification by faith only that the Protestant revival then came. 
It was getting back to the truth that the epistles and the Galatians and the Romans that prepared the way for the outpouring of the Spirit. It happened in every country where Reformation spread. It was the same in the 17th century. And then it was happening in the 18th century. You had all this deadness. Then suddenly revival came and great preachers like Whitfield and Wesley's and others appeared. And how did revival come through these men? What made it possible for John Wesley to have an experience he had at Alder Street? Please read your history. You can Google this stuff for goodness sakes. It says that, that when John Wesley, when his heart was strangely warmed by the Holy Spirit, something happened three months earlier. He had this experience on May 24th in 1738. But in March of 1738, his eyes were opened to the truth of justification by faith only. It was only after he saw that central truth about justification by faith only, it gripped him, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and God used him in a credible way. At that time, one of the greatest preachers in the world was a man called Daniel Rowland. This is a story exactly like the others. He was a, a preacher, but his ministry was useless. It was dead. Nothing ever happened. Then one day he listened to a preacher called Griffin Jones. And he was convinced, conv convicted of the truth of justification by faith only. And it was just a few months after seeing that truth and realizing it, that he had not yet felt his power, that suddenly one day he was taking simple communion service and the Holy Spirit came upon him, filled him, and the great revival broke out in Wales in the 18th century. This has always been the case. It's the same over a hundred years ago. These great preachers saw the importance of the full truth, the full gospel concerning our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when they came to that realization, then revival came. The Philistines kept coming. They threw their earth in there. They threw their rubbish there. And the water of life was hidden out of sight. When the truths are neglected, denied, or even ignored, you cannot have revival. We must start with the work of the Philistines. It's no sense, makes no sense to just pray for revival. There's something we have to do before that. The work of the Philistines must be cleared out. This is what Isaac did. Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. They cleared out the rubbish. They cleared out the refuge. They cleared out the earth. And there was water again. Every revival shows clearly the preliminary of that work must be done first. There are certain things I have to put before you as your pastor. Certain truths that have to be revealed and believed. Revival cannot happen if our truths are denied. We have to look at them and take them and own them, make them ours. So, what are the truths that are denied, that are concealed by those Philistines? What are the truths? Here's the first one. The truth concerning the sovereign, transcendent, living God who acts, intervenes, interrupts into the history of the church and of its individuals. It's the foundation of all the doctrines. Consider, for instance, the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. This is a great story. Things were difficult. Timothy was troubled. He's losing hope. Everything was dark. He doesn't know what the future's going to hold. Paul's aged. He's facing death. And here's Timothy frightened. He's scared. He comes to Paul. And Paul writes to him and says, what you are saying is very true. I know about these people who, you are who are denying the truths and so on. And then he says to them this, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. The basis of everything is the sovereign, transcendent, living God who is eternal. He acts, intervenes, interferes with the life of the whole church and individuals. I can't say it enough. If there is anything that is more obvious than anything else in life in the church today, it's a failure to start with and believe that truth. 
What do we have today? Well, we have that God is a concept. He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's not a concept. He's the author and finisher of life. But people argue about him. You know, they put their old pipes in their mouths and, well, let's talk about this God concept thing. And the reason they do that is because they have to put God in terms that they can handle. It is very difficult for some people that are geniuses, particularly in math, math geniuses. I remember as a youth pastor, we had a couple of kids that were math majors. And you're trying to explain them the Trinity, for instance, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. One plus one plus one equals one, God. They're all God. And a mathematician looks at you and goes, you're an idiot. You're telling me that one plus one plus one equals one? Yeah. That's why it's very difficult for overthinkers and philosophers. Because why? They're trying to put God into their terms. See, if I don't understand God, then if I can't rationalize it in my own heart, if I can't figure this thing out to make sense, then I don't know if he's real. And when you have people putting God into their own terms, you will never have revival. God is not an abstraction. Something or someone to be argued with, fitting into your plan. Philosophy, psychology in that sense, has always been the curse of the life of the church, and it's a curse today. Another way in which the glorious truth about God is being concealed is by what people call pantheism. We see this a lot up here. Pantheism, God is in everything. I've seen more people talk about, I go up to the top of Mount Zion Road, I look at these mountains, I go up to Bear River, and God is in everything. And I just, I don't need a church because God's everywhere and in everything. But the argument is that because God is in everything, you don't expect him to act from the outside. God is everywhere. Everything. Everything is sacred. They dislike the distinguishing between something that's secular and something that's, that's sacred. They say it's all sacred. Everything is sacred. There's another way of defining the sovereignty and the internal, um, uh, the internal being of God. And it's, it, it leads toward deism. It's a common thing. Deism was over a couple of hundred years ago, but it's kind of the same thing. About, it's about God, which believes him as a creator. It's like God made the universe like he made a Swiss watch and then just handed it over to you and said, it's all yours. God's the creator. Yeah, 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 but he's, he's out of it. There, I made it. It's all just going to happen now. The idea that God... He's a God who doesn't intervene. He's a God who doesn't act. He's remote. So people don't believe in revival. Why? Because that means God is acting. In revival, God is coming in. God is breaking in. So if you have the God of the philosophers and of the deists and the rationalists, you will never have revival. And indeed, prayer basically is a waste of time. Because how often is that precisely people's attitudes towards prayer? It's something formal. It's mechanical. They read their prayers. They muddle them up. They, they have no living contact with a personal God who is there for you. In fact, they, they banish God to his own eternity, and he's way over there. And why, why do we put God over there? Why do we do that? Because man wants to be center stage. Man wants to be in control. Man is in charge. It's pride. It's pride. It's pride. God above and yet with us, acting and interfering, and a God who visits his people. That's who I worship. How can we pray to God unless we are clear and correct in our ideas of the sovereign living God. The work of the Philistines has been to obscure that. And that the work must have been gotten rid of before we can ever see the water. We have got to get rid of that. The second truth that's been hidden follows the first. It's the authority of this book. The work of the Philistines is this. We must consider it generally because there are groups and divisions among the Philistines as well. They deny revelation. 
Of course, in their view of God, they've been describing you can't have revelation. They don't believe in inspiration. They don't really believe that God revealed his truth concerning himself as it's recorded in the Bible. How do they arrive at that truth? Well, the answer is that they arrive at the truth by searching for it, by their reasoning and their understanding and their speculations. The whole emphasis today is on man's search for God, as if God has never revealed himself at all. But the whole case of the Bible is that God is searching for man and that he has revealed himself to man. Everything today, everything is being governed and controlled by what we think about God. And people defy God and they make God after their own image. And he is not God. He's just a lie to them. And this is the case and if it is your case, too, that it's a distant, non-interfering God, you have no right to talk about revival or expect it or hope for it. Because we have to get out of our human thinking and realize that our ways are not God's ways. So what is our final authority in these matters? What do I know about God? The possibility of blessing apart from what I have in this book. Do I claim that my mind and my reason can select what's right in this book and what's wrong? That I only need to hold on to what I agree with in this book? That I can stand firmly and say, I believe in eight out of the Ten Commandments. That's pretty good. Well, who's the authority there? That makes me the authority not this book. That makes me reason. That makes me the standard, not God's revelation. You can't just open the book and go, well, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 no, 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 yeah, no. You don't get to do that. If you read the history and revivals of the past, you find that there have been periods where men and women have believed that this book is the word of God. They believe it literally. They have regarded it as revelation of God and the truth concerning him and man's relationship to him. And they have believed that this book was written by men who were divinely inspired. They submitted themselves to it. They did not stand above it as judges and those who decide what's wrong, right and wrong. But the Philistines have been terribly active for, during the last few hundred years. They have denied the authority of Scripture. They have set up their own opinions, their own philosophy, their own science, their own learning, and all these things. The sup supernatural element, that's completely discounted. Miracles are disbelieved. Science is supposed to be incompatible with all of that, you know. All these things have been covered over by the Philistines. Any direct activity on the part of God? Well, I don't know. I don't know if that fits into the system of the world. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Read the book of Revelation and look at Babylon. And look at the systems of the world. And see how much the church has found itself within that system. And we have got to get out of Babylon. We've got to get the Philistine stuff out of there. And we have got to get down to the living water, the truth of Jesus Christ and the authority of this scripture. I plead with you, read the history. There has never been a revival where men have put their ideas and opinions before the authority and the word of God. And the third great fundamental truth of belief, which has been ignored... And this is something that you're not going to find in the tickle your ears, have a wonderful self-help Sunday. But a simple truth that's been ignored is that man in sin is under the wrath of God. And people who believe this truth sometimes will find it insulting. People have always been like that. Go back and read the histories. When there's decline and deadness in the church, people didn't believe in sin that way. They didn't believe in the wrath of God. 
And I suppose there's no two things in connection with the Christian faith that are so neglected as the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of the wrath of God. Because it doesn't make us feel good. We don't get our warm and fuzzies. That preacher, he's old style, fire and brimstone. It's insulting to mankind, this wrath of God. Why? Because I only believe in the God of the New Testament. Jesus, who is loving and caring and died for me so that I can have life in abundance. People don't believe the God of the Old Testament that sat on the top of Mount Sinai, shouting out his wrath, his condemnation. People just want to believe the God of Jesus. Wrath of God is incompatible with a God of love. That is the work of the Philistines. Because mere history of every revival brings this out immediately. Men and women in the midst of revival are at first conscious of two things before anything else. One is their own sinfulness. Look in the Bible. Read stories of when men came, women came in contact with God, the true living God. They fall. They fall forward. I don't know if they fell backwards. They fell. I know they fell. They fell to their knees. They covered their mouths. They covered their eyes. When you're in revival, you see men and women groaning, agonizing under the conviction of their sin. They're conscious of their unworthiness, their vileness. They feel that they cannot live. They do not know what to do with themselves. They cannot sleep. They're in the agony of their soul. If you read history, you'll see that the thing which stands out, the fact that the Bible is taught about the human heart, it says this in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Listen to Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Paul said it this way. It's me. It's my flesh that dwelleth no good thing. O wretched man that I am. In revival, men and women feel as Paul felt. They see their own sinfulness and they're horrified. And they cry out for deliverance. They know they are deserving of the wrath of God. God hates sin with all the intensity of his divine nature and being. And they know he does. He's told us in his word. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New. The Jesus whom people put up against the Old Testament, he taught about the wrath of God. He spoke about hell. He spoke about a place, he says in Mark chapter 9, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is Jesus who uttered those thoughts. It is everywhere in the New Testament as well as the Old. And I know of nothing that is so terrifying in the whole book that is a statement in the last book in Revelation chapter 6, which tells us those men and women who in the end, when they see God, when they see Jesus, will call to the mountains, let the rocks fall upon them and hide them. From what? It says from the wrath of the Lamb, the Lamb of God the incarnation of his love. It is wrath that is the most terrifying thing of all. This is what happens in every period of revival and reawakening. Steve, if you could come up and we'll wrap it up with another last point. But number one, people quake in the presence of a living and holy God. Is this not the thing above all other things that we have to cast out that the Philistines have covered up? I would make this point. Because of my deep conviction that until men and women of the Christian church are humbled, fall to the earth before this holy and righteous, yes, to the term of Jonathan Edwards used, an angry God, until we return to that, I see no hope for revival. It is our arrogance. It is our pride. It is our tendency to set ourselves up and to define God in our own image instead of falling before him. Furthermore, if we do not have this foundation, there is no point in proceeding. It is not enough. Oh, hear me, church. Those who love Jesus, hear me today. It is not enough to say you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We shall be considering the doctrine of this person and his work, but you cannot believe him truly unless you start with the sovereign, transcendent, holy God who is and who acts. If you don't submit yourself entirely to the revelation that he has given, and if you're not aware of the plague in your own heart, the foulness of your own nature that you have inherited from Adam, if you don't see your hopelessness and utter despair before this holy, righteous God who hates sin with the whole being, you have no right to talk about revival or pray about it. But the good news is he is sovereign and we have to start somewhere. And he had sent his Savior, Jesus. And when you see all that despair, all the hopelessness for our utter foulness of our flesh. You see the greatness of the Savior Jesus Christ, the Messiah who came to save us, who sought us. What revival reveals above everything else is the sovereignty of God, the iniquity and the helplessness and the hopelessness of the man in sin. May God give us grace to meditate on these things, because the question is, how do you think of God? How do you approach God? What is your attitude in his presence? Let's start with ourselves. It's personal. It's in each and every one of us. In revival, God takes hold of the unknown. The unknown people that nobody ever heard of. The insignificant so-called members of the church. And it is through such people he has done his mightiest works. So I appeal to you, please consider these things. Are you clear about the fundamental truths in your life? Is there evidence of the work of the Philistines in your heart? If there is, ask God to clear it out. Ask God to build back his foundation. Ask God to reveal to you where you have been blinded by the refuge of the Philistines. What have I allowed to plug up the well of living water that is wanting to birth out of me? What is keeping me from God? Is it my view of God? Have I forgotten what the Bible says and I'm just inserting my own thoughts and my own imagination in my limited reality and my limited imagination and saying, that's God? I can tell you, I don't care if you're the greatest thinker the world has ever known and you have studied and studied and studied and studied. There is no way that no human being will ever know the fullness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, until we get to heaven that day and it's revealed. His ways are not ours. We are the managers. He is the owner. We have to submit to the fact that we need a Savior. Sin is just missing the mark. And we inherited it from Adam, from the first sin, and we still have it in this flesh. But the Lord Jesus Christ came to save us, to seek us, to wrap us under his, around his arms and to cover us with his blood that was shed in our place. He came to seek and save the lost. And through the revelation of his Holy Spirit, we opened our eyes, we opened up our ears and our heart and said, Jesus, I repent. I turned the direction I was going and I want to go your direction. I don't understand it all, but by faith, I believe. By faith, I believe in you, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. By faith, I don't understand it all, but I come to you as filthy rags and I say, God, come in, cleanse me. Cleanse me. Make me white as new. Let me be presented to my Father in heaven spotless. Let me enter into those gates because you took my place and died for me. Hallelujah. Those of you here today, stand wherever you're at today. I just ask you again, what do you think about God and how do you think about God? So Father, we just ask you, open up our eyes again. Open up our hearts again. Open up our ears again. Let us get out of ourselves and let us fall before a holy, just God. And let us thank Him for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh, Father, come again. Revive us again, Lord. Let it start with me. Let it start with all of us here. 
that believe by faith we believe not by our human knowledge our intellect our philosophies our psychology but by faith we believe we believe in how salvation really works by the word of God we believe in the sovereignty of God we believe in the the authority of the scriptures and we believe that God's wrath will come upon the sin of the world and that we have been sheltered in the wings of the eagles of Jesus Christ thank you thank you Jesus thank you Jesus I didn't deserve it but thank you Jesus right where you're at thank you Jesus just thank him right where you're at thank you God please don't let my pride don't let my intellect don't let my rationale and, and my philosophies get in your way thank you Jesus thank you Jesus increase my faith thank you Jesus Holy Spirit come this morning if you're not sure you just say that prayer I'm filthy rags my sin. Jesus, save me. I want to go your direction. I'm done trying to do it my way. I want to do it yours. I believe by faith you are the Son of the living God. And if you pray that prayer, get around believers that can encourage you, uplift you, and exalt you to help you in your walk. Comment below or send us an email. Contact us. Let us partner with you in your walk. We want to help you. We want to guide you. We want to direct you to this book. That's our goal. So, Father, thank you for today. Bless us in the mighty name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you this morning. Have a great day. Thank you, everybody joining us online. We hope you have a safe week. We hope you have a great week. In Jesus' name. Thank you.